Let's pray once more. Father, I think we are all moved by the video that we just saw, by the faith of Rebecca and many others like her all around the world. So I want to begin today by leading all of us, but, but me included, to come before you now and to ask you for forgiveness, for you to grant us repentance. I ask for you to grant us forgiveness and repentance for our arrogance. We Americans think we're on top of the world, but a woman like Rebecca puts us to shame. Forgive us. Forgive us for our um, distracted neglect particularly of your word. Forgive us how many homes here we have, how many Bibles, how many Bibles on our phones, how many Bibles on our bookshelves, and we're so distracted by our stuff and our media and everything else. Forgive us. So I want to pause for a moment and give us now a chance to silently talk with you, Father in confession and asking you for repentance. So let's, let's pray before the Father silently now, please. Father, I thank you that your word is true. You promise in your word that those who confess their sins, to them you are faithful and just to not only forgive us of all of our sins, you do that, but you not only do that, but you cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness, even the things that we don't think to confess to you, that matter to you as well. So I say thank you. I say thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. So now I pray, I pray that you would cause your word to dwell within us richly. Grant me to be clear with my words, but I pray will you grant me to recede into the background. Will you please cause your word to become three-dimensional before us today? Do a great work. Do a miraculous work. Do a supernatural work among us today, for that is what we need. Discipleship is a supernatural thing through and through. So I pray, will you do nothing less than what you do, the supernatural in the human heart? Fill us with joy in you. Give us a vision, a vision of where you are leading us. Grant us mercy, grant us grace, grant us fire in our souls today, I pray. There's kindling here, set it ablaze, I ask. Amen. 
As we've heard before, Luke has taught us, and he will teach us again today, that discipleship is simply this, staying with Jesus in his trials. We just saw that with Rebecca. She's a disciple seeking to stay with Jesus in his trials. Yes, it was, it was her husband and her son killed. It was, it was her village burned down to the ground. But those are his trials. Jesus is executed. He's been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. So, so he's not here right now. And yet, on another level, yes, he, he is here right now. His body is us. We are united to him by his spirit, and so we still continue, as Paul says elsewhere, to fill up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That's what God is doing in us now, today. That is discipleship. That's discipleship. So, it, and, and he is still on a war here and now. The, the, the first battle of this war was lost in the first garden. And he, as we saw last week, came to the second garden. And he's the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do in the first garden, to pl- completely submit to the Father. But now he has completely submitted to the Father in order to advance his kingdom. And as the light advances, the darkness recoils from it. The darkness will resist it, and the darkness resists it even now. Even now. We saw last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus there became for the first time in eternity past spiritually alone. Alone for us. The Father turned his back and the Spirit receded and Jesus is cut adrift. And now in the passage before us today, his friends will do the same. They'll they'll cut him loose. And now in every respect, he's alone. Alone. For us. For us. Just just a side side note. Uh, When when I say that, when when I say for us, I want want to say something in advance today. I'm going to say for us again. But there's two ways to hear that. There's two ways to hear that. One way is um, when I was in high school, I I was a freshman quarterback, and uh, I... Uh, only the varsity guys got to wear a green S on the gold helmet, okay? And uh, I was not on varsity. I was not even on JV. (laughs) I should have been running cross country. (laughs) But uh, one day the, the, the coach came up to me. All the other quarterbacks had gotten creamed. And he comes up to me in practice, and he puts this green S on my helmet, and I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. I'm varsity. And then he looks at me and he wags his finger in my face and he says, you better earn this. You better earn this. And I thought to myself, I should be running cross country. I, I can't earn this. <laughs> but that's how some people say, I, I don't, when, I, when, I, when I go through the sermon today, I don't want you to hear me when I say for us, that Jesus is going through all this for us. I, I don't want you to hear this and, and hear, you better earn this. 
you, you better feel guilty enough so you, so you gin up something to shape up. Do, do, do you see? No, that's not, that's not what I mean. What, what I do mean, though, is, is for us to sit in awe of what Jesus is doing. And, I, and I, I hope, I hope that by the end of today, you would feel a joy in what Jesus is doing, okay? Not, not a guilt-ridden angst, you better earn this, but an awe, an awe, joy-filled awe of what he's doing for us here. So today we're, we're going to see three roles of Jesus that he fills for us, for us. He is the lover of our souls. He is the lamb who is led away to be slaughtered for us. And he is the Lord, the Lord of all. Lover, lamb, and Lord. The question today will not be, can you remember and recite these? And, you know, get at least a B on the exam later. That's, that's not the point what we're doing here. But the question will be, do these roles move you? Do, do you feel this awe? Do, do you feel what you should feel? And, and does this move you to stand in the right place in relationship to Jesus? That's the point. That's, that's the goal today. That's, that's what I pray for, because everybody has a relationship with Jesus. Did you know that? We, we often say that. I want you to have a relationship with Jesus. No, no, no. Everybody has a relationship with Jesus. It's not a matter of whether you do, but what that relationship actually is. What matters is where are you actually standing, whether we are actually with Jesus in his trials or not. Those are the only two groups of people on the face of the earth, those who are with him in his trials and those who are not. Well, let's, let's watch Jesus and let me show you what I mean first, that he is the lover of our souls, verses 54 to 62 of Luke 22. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the, the big numbers of the chapters and the little numbers of the verses, and so we're, we're in Luke 22, big number, verses 54 to 62, the little numbers. We're, we're still in the Garden of Gethsemane at night. Judas has betrayed Jesus, and now Jesus is led away by the soldiers. Verse 54, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now, we, we should first affirm that Peter is following Jesus. That's good. That's good. That's, that's how we often describe discipleship. But he is following at a distance. Verse 55, after the arresting soldiers are done with Jesus, they kindle a fire it's, it's cold in Palestine in the spring, and Peter sits down among them. Now we can imagine, because we're a lot like Peter, we can imagine what's going through his mind. No mention is made of the other disciples, although in another place John is recorded as being nearby somewhere. And perhaps Peter justifies himself by comparison. Hey, at least I'm here, right? At least I'm here. Where, where, where's the other guys, you know? He wants to follow Jesus, and hey, yeah, but, but he wants to have it both ways. He wants to follow Jesus, but remain protected and anonymous. But a servant girl blows that up, verse 56. She looks at him closely by the firelight and, uh, and then says out loud, as, as kids are wont to do, this man was also with him. And as kids are wont to do, 
so often she's totally right, more right than she realizes. Peter was with him, was, meaning he's no longer with him. He's no longer with him. He, he's, his proximity is all wrong. His justifications are blown up. He's exposed. So he tries to deflect, woman, I do not know him. Perhaps he uses the word woman there because women in that culture were not afforded the same rights or the same value in terms of testimony. You know, it's just a woman talking, don't, you know, look the other way, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but, but that doesn't last. A little while later in verse 58, a man says the same thing, and again, Peter denies it. Then in verse 59, an hour passes. Again, we don't know what Peter was thinking, but we could make good guesses. Perhaps he's justifying some more. Perhaps he's going back and forth in his head trying to gin up the courage to leave the warmth and the supposed safety of the fire. Have you ever felt that? But then a third person outs Peter, probably noticing his Galilean country accent. Certainly this man was also with him, for he too was a Galilean. And then verse 60, Peter's denial is the most emphatic. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And then as if all of these events are being scripted by a higher, completely sovereign power, (laughs) at just that moment, the rooster crowed. And at that moment, verse 61, the Lord, the master, turned and looked at Peter. Somehow in all of this happening, their eyes meet. Then Peter remembers how earlier when he had boasted to Jesus that he would follow him to jail in the grave, Jesus had told him that no, actually, before the rooster crows three times today, you'll, uh, you'll deny me. In verse 62, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Now, I want to think more about those two words there, wept and bitterly. These, these tears, Peter's tears, they, they teach us something about the reality of, of where Peter was standing. Where Peter was standing. Because what, what is in play here is, is not, not the, the darkness's response to Peter. The, our generation, that generation, has a gag reflex against the light. And it will vomit it out. It will recoil and it will resist the advancing of Christ's kingdom. That's not in question. That's not in question. What is, question, what, what is in question is where we are standing in relationship with Jesus. Peter here is standing at a distance trying to play it safe. This is what we so often do, and, and, and it, feels, it feels like a safe, neutral, middle ground. It, it feels more respectable. It, it feels like discipleship. It feels like it. But as Peter's tears reveal, oh goodness, the whole time when it, when it felt like I was still a disciple, when it felt like I was still kind of safe, I wasn't safe at all the whole time. There was a line there of discipleship, and the whole time I was standing on the other side of the line. And this line of division, it, it was set, it, it was not set by, you know, people often say today, our culture is divided, it was polarized. 
you know, well, when did that happen? When did that happen? Did that happen when so-and-so got elected? Did that happen when some war happened? Did that happen in the 60s? No, it happened in the garden. The two sides were established in the garden, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Those are the only two groups of people on the earth. This antithesis was set in the garden, and there is no neutral middle between them. This, this imaginary neutral middle that, that we would like to create for ourselves where we can, we can follow Jesus at a safe distance but, but still remain safe, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's an oasis. It's a mirage in the desert. It doesn't exist. It's all sand. Evidenced by the fact that uh, though our enemy is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, even the lowest servant girl could pick off Peter here from this spot as he, as he stood here in this imaginary neutral middle ground. He, was so, he thought he was safe. He was so vulnerable, so vulnerable to just one wag of the finger. And, and then Peter's cowardice, it, it inevitably leads to shame, to shame, the, the emotion that I connect with the word bitterly here. Shame, bitter shame for bailing on Jesus. And, and this is exactly the place that the evil one wants him and you and I to be in, filled with shame. Sometimes Satan does his, quote, finest work, not to get us to sin, but after the sin. After the sin. That we would be bowled over and weighed down, weighed down by the heavy, heavy weight of shame. Because what, where are you standing now, Peter, verse 62? Where, where are you standing now? Even further off from Jesus. Now too filled with shame and self-loathing to look up, that that shame is pushing you further and further away from the master towards where the cowards are hiding. And that was the point all along. Peter is being sifted by the evil one. This was the game plan all along. To sift him like wheat. To peel him off from his master, from his Lord. Well, so, so what, do, what do we do with shame? What, what do we do with shame? Because I, I got to tell you, I, I am sitting under this sermon first before, I've, before I'm delivering it to you. I am sitting under this myself because I, I see myself, especially certain seasons of my life, so much like Peter. So, so what do we do with shame? Well, we'll read about what Jesus does with Peter's shame later, but I want to say three things from this text. First, there is such a thing as right-placed shame and misplaced shame. Right-placed shame and misplaced shame. The reason why Peter feels Shame, as he weeps bitterly, is because he did something shameful. <laughs> he feels shame because he did something shameful. Under the pressure, he buckled and bailed on his best friend. Shame is a feeling that registers that we have done something inherently shameful. Thus, Peter rightly feels shame. That is rightly placed shame. But there is such a thing as misplaced shame too. We see how powerful that can be with the servant girl. She points her uh, intolerantly tolerant finger at Peter and Peter buckles. Peter buckles and, and 
he buckles because he feels the false misplaced shame of being identified as one who is with Jesus. This is misplaced shame. For there is nothing inherently shameful about being with Jesus in his trials. I mean, you know that, but do you know that? <laughs> I didn't say anything dirty you don't know, but God help us believe that. That there's nothing inherently shameful about being with Jesus. This is the ironic thing about cancel culture. The very people who say that shame is just a psychological leftover from the religion of the past are very quick to expose and employ shame themselves. The very thing that they deny that, that they deny that it exists, they use it all the time. It, it's their primary tool, in fact, shame and condemnation, and we Christians buckle under it all the time. All the time. Why? Why? Because of where we were standing in relationship to Jesus in the first place. Because we're not actually standing with him in his trials. We want to have it both ways. We, we want to follow him, but at a distance. Why? Why? There's several reasons. One is that we have not actually gone into the garden with him first. You, you can't follow him out of the garden unless you've gone into the garden first. And remember what happened in the garden. Jesus surrendered himself to the Father. He surrendered himself and said, not my will, but yours be done. We don't, we don't live that kind of life with the Father. We live a demanding life, gimme, 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 without surrender, but that's not discipleship at all. I, I, I don't know who I'm talking to. I, I don't know at all, but maybe somebody here who's been a Christian for a long time needs to become a Christian. There's a time in my life when I, I realized, I think, I think that just happened. Being a Christian for a long time, I became a Christian. I finally surrendered it all to him. Perfectly, oh, sheesh, not even close. But surrender. That's, that's one reason why we want to have it both ways. We, we also want to have it both ways because we fear pain. We're happy, fat, and sassy Americans, and, you know, pain is just something, you've done something wrong, you know? You, you just needed the right pill. You know, that's, that's who we are. We, we recoil from pain. We're afraid of it. We cannot imagine a life in which pain yields the greatest glorious good. Which evidences the fact that the, the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus where he goes down before he goes up, is actually not, um, not defining and not coloring our view of our whole world. So, we want to have it both ways. We want to follow him, but at a distance. Perhaps because we want to be liked. Christianity in America has made being nice the 11th commandment. Being liked, being, being loved. And uh, so for, for many of us, we, we struggle. We struggle in this imaginary middle, this seemingly safe but actually vulnerable imaginary middle and it leads us to shame it leads us to cowardice and shame again i i say, I say we I say me too I, I can remember after high school giving a talk at my church and in high school my family jokes about it i, I was liked by 
by many. I, I won all the popularity contests. And uh, for that reason, they wanted me to give this speech on a Sunday night at church. And I remember as I stood up there, I had something to say. And as I stood up there in front of all the people of the church, um, it began to hit me like, a, like an anvil. Oh, high school's over. And I'm never going to have a chance. I'm never going to have the... How many opportunities did I, did I pass by to share the gospel with people? How many opportunities did I squander in order to play it safe? In order to get that, you know, that paper crown that, that like, called prom king or something. Um, in order to get the prizes of popularity. And, and then, much to my own surprise, in front of the church, I began to weep. <laughs> most, one of the most embarrassing things ever. But I began to weep thinking about this. What's the value of that paper crown of prom king compared to the worth of the souls of men? I had not been willing to risk it. That was right-placed shame that came from a life of avoiding misplaced shame. Do you see? So, so, so what, what do we do with that shame? What do we do with it? I, I didn't know then. I know something now, a few things. So this is the second thing I want to say about shame. And it is this. Understand the look of the Lord. Understand the look of the Lord here. The world, like that girl, looks at us with misplaced shame. So then we buckle and we screw it up. And then we end up looking at ourselves with rightly placed shame. And many of us spend our whole lives spinning there between these two looks. Misplaced shame, rightly placed shame, misplaced, and, and we just spin and spin. But consider and understand the look of the Lord, verse 61. For when he looked at Peter, I'm convinced it represented two things. Two things were happening there. First, it was for judgment. It was for judgment. He totally bailed on Jesus. That's bad to betray your friends. That's shameful to betray your friends. So that look, it, it exposed all of Peter's pretensions of being self-sufficient in himself. That look was judgment on Peter, yes. But Jesus had not just told him, when the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. He also told Peter, I have prayed for you, verse 32. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So this look in verse 62, it's not just for judgment, but it's for grace. It's for grace. It's the look of the lover of Peter's soul, aching for Peter, that his, that, that, that his prayer would be answered for Peter, and that Peter's faith would not fail. It's the look of love. If, if I could say this, stripped away of all of its modern triteness, Jesus' look says to Peter, and it says to you, Christian, I love you so, so much. Yeah, you mucked it up. I love you so, so much. Yeah, that's worthy of condemnation. I love you so, so much. And I'm going to show that to you. I'm, 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 I'm going to show that to you by becoming the Lamb of God to die for your sins. I don't deserve that. Right. I, I love you far more. You don't, you don't deserve this love. I love you far more than what you deserve. Far more. 
Peter's misplaced shame led him to do things that led to rightly placed shame, but that rightly placed shame is now setting him up to see the look of Jesus, which has no shame. No shame. Yes, judgment, that was wrong, but no shame. Do you see? Because for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation, as I prayed before, for those who are in him. No condemnation. I love you much more than you deserve, and so I'm going to remove that shame from you by taking it upon myself. I will take your shame as the lover of your soul. I will remove your shame by becoming your lamb. Verses 63 to 65. He is the lamb of God. He is the lover of our souls, and he is the lamb of God. So now, verse 63, the soldiers who held Jesus in custody, they they mocked him as they beat him. Luke's emphasis here is on the mocking, not, not the beating part. You know, you, people could beat each other for different reasons, you know. <laughs> might, might be a good reason to beat up somebody else, you know, and self-defense or something. There's, there's all kinds of reasons, but Luke's motivation, Luke's uh, emphasis here is on the heart motivation. They beat Jesus out of hearts of malice and hatred. Then they blindfolded him, verse 64, and they kept asking him, prophesy, tell us who struck you. But what they say is true. He is the prophet of prophets. In fact, he is fulfilling all the prophets. At this moment, these soldiers are unwittingly fulfilling the Old Testament as a whole. Just as Jesus will say later on the Emmaus Road in chapter 24, verse 26, the Old Testament all over pointed to the fact that the Messiah had to suffer had to suffer. After all, what was the central feature of Israel's religion but blood sacrifice? It was right there on the surface. Blood sacrifice. Especially on the day of the Passover, the altar of the temple was a bloody mess with all the sacrifices. Of course, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, would come speaking the words of God like a prophet, but he would also have to suffer first. Thus, the whole Bible up to this point is being fulfilled at this moment by these clueless soldiers as they, verse 65, among many other things, blaspheme him. So, I said before, there's no condemnation. There's no shame in his look upon you, upon you. There's no shame because as the lover of your soul See this with the, with the eyes of your heart. Behold the Lamb of God here taking your rightly placed shame upon himself for you, becoming ashamed, becoming mocked, becoming berated, condemned for you. When Jesus looks at us, we, we can know by his gaze, yeah, actually, to be totally honest, I deserved that. That's what his gaze says. But it also says, in love, I take it for you. <laughs> That's the only time I beat a pulpit. <laughs> because his love, he loves you so, so much. I wish I, wish I could say that without any triteness. Because it is so doggone true. Just as Isaiah 53 Seven prophesied. The whole Bible is being fulfilled here. He was oppressed. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. For you, for me. Here stands the lamb, silent and alone on the altar of God for screw-ups like me. And what you and I feel about this, if, if we feel shame, if, if we feel shame, if we felt shame perhaps before for neglecting our Bibles, that shame speaks to us. That if anything, it is meant to say to you, not you're, you're no good. That shame is meant to say to you, go to him. Because he's taken that shame upon himself for you. Go to him. Confess it. Trust him. Be cleansed. Be washed clean. <laughs> Don't let this pass by. He's the lover of your soul, and therefore he becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and all of our shame, all of our rightly placed shame on him. It's being laid on him right now. Right now. So he is the lover of our souls. He is the Lamb of God. And lastly, he is the Lord of all. Verses 66 to 71. There's, there's a lot more that we can say about this than I can right now, especially about the political machinations going on here. So I'm going to return back to it next week but uh, with, with more detail. But when, when daylight comes, verse 66, the Sanhedrin, that's the, this governing body of Israel, they gather together and Verse 67, they try to entrap Jesus with his own words. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, the word Christ in English comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one, anointed one. And that word was a Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we translate, transliterate into English as Messiah. Um, thus, Christ and Messiah basically mean the same thing the anointed one who comes to save us. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's one of his offices, one of his roles that he was anointed by God, called by God to do, to save us. But to save us from what? Save us from what? Because in those days, the average Israelite was really tired of Roman oppression. The high taxes, the indignities of the bureaucratic state, of having a pluralistic culture jam other gods down their throats. Does that sound familiar? And so there were a lot of people running around claiming to be little messiahs, little Christs, all over the place. They were often called zealots. It's, it's, it's kind of like what every person running for president does, you know, is what they promised. Let's throw off these Romans so we can have hope and change and make Israel great again. You know, that's, that's basically what they're all doing. So if Jesus were to claim this, it would be nothing new. It, it might surprise you to hear. that, And, and it, was, it was therefore not illegal for a Jew to claim to be the Christ. That actually wasn't a, a capital punishment to say that. To say that. Because a, a Christ, w w they had expected the Christ to be just a really awesome dude. A really, a really great guy. Um, but it would be very convenient for them very convenient for them that though to claim to be the Messiah, the Christ, was not a capital offense, um, it would be very convenient for them to have the go Roman governor Pilate execute Jesus because they could say he's a terrorist and an insurrectionist against Rome. 
So by hook or by crook, they, they, they just want Jesus dead. You know, that's what's up here. So they ask him, verses 67 to 68, are you the Christ? To which Jesus plainly replies, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. In other words, let's just cut the, cut the you-know-what. But then Jesus actually ups his own offense for the Sanhedrin. He cops to a greater crime. Verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Again, the word Messiah or Christ had become so commonplace that they did not view it as synonymous with God. Just a really awesome dude. But there was another different person from the Old Testament, different in the eyes of the Jews, that they anticipated that they really didn't know what to do with. From Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. Prophecy of Daniel, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, not just over Israel, but over all peoples, nations, and languages, that he should all serve him. His dominion, it's not like a great presidency. It's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed unlike every other kingdom. This is God. This is God. A figure that is on the one hand man that the son of man verse 13 meaning the ultimate man the prototype man the perfect man and yet at the same time this man would somehow be united with deity. He would be God at the same time reigning over the nations. It is very similar to God's favorite verse, that's what some people call it, the verse most quoted in the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, catch what's happening. The Sanhedrin is trying to catch Jesus with a lesser charge of just being a Christ, and Jesus cops to the greater charge of being the Son of Man, the Son of God, of being God, which is a capital offense. You Jews, he says, want a Christ that will bring hope and change and make Israel great again. And Jesus says, I am that, and you will see me like that, reigning over every nation, but not yet. Not yet. First comes the suffering of the Son of Man, the Son of God, and I am that too. See, you see, the, the only reason why we in our minds put together Christ and, and the Son of Man to the Son of God is that Jesus is both of them. The Jews didn't see it that way, and Jesus says, I am both. I am both. Now, the Sanhedrin cannot believe what gift they've just been given, verse 70. So that you, you, you could emphasize verse 70 like, so um, are you the Son of God then? Huh? Are you? Because unlike claiming to be Christ, this would be a capital offense, and it makes things really convenient for us. And Jesus replies, you say that I am. And then verse 71, they say, what further testimony do we need? And they convict him. So, so why did Jesus do this? Why, why did he cop to the greater charge? Nobody does that. Because there's, there's two things happening here. Number one, the Sanhedrin is completely guilty of scheming to put Jesus to death. They are, they are totally culpable, totally culpable. And yet at the same time, Jesus is totally in control. 
totally in control. Yes, it is their choice. They are guilty of the malice in their hearts. And yet over and above their choice, it is the sovereign choice of God to put his own son to death for us. Jesus ups the offense to ensure that he will hang on a cross. To ensure this. To ensure that you and I will have our sins forgiven. Not because he has a martyr complex. Remember the drops of blood that he sweat in the garden. No, it's because God has called him, anointed him as Christ, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the God-man, to suffer for us, for me and for you. God called him to be the second Adam, to pay for the sins of the first Adam and for all of his race, you and I that he might remove from us our guilt and shame, but that's not his end game. His end game is reign, is to reign over a restored even heaven and earth made one, all of the nations coming under this glorious reign of Jesus the King. So, where do you stand? Where do you stand in relationship to Jesus? Because today, he is still, he is still advancing that kingdom. He is still on this mission to bring about the submission of all of the nations under his glorious and good reign. Where do you stand? Do you make the mistake of Peter and follow him at a distance in a vague kind of setback association with Jesus? Do you, have the, do you make the mistake of thinking, I, I'm in the safe place. The safe place is in, this, is in this middle ground here, this neutral middle ground. Do you make that mistake because that is, that is not safe? That is not safe. Or do you make the mistake of the Sanhedrin and make him see him only as a Messiah whose only calling is to bring about hope and change and make America great again? Because that puts him in your pocket. He is far greater than that. For he is bringing a kingdom in which all of our hopes and dreams that we search for everywhere else are fulfilled. All of our desires that we were made to enjoy forever, they will be found in his kingdom. In his kingdom. By all of the nations submitting themselves to him, to his reign. So I I confess to you again that Some of my years as a banker were were just what I'm talking about here, lived with a a vague and distant and a supposedly safe association with Jesus, but not with him in his trials. But that, that place is ripe for the picking by the evil one. It feels safe. It's actually the most vulnerable. That place is the combine, the place of sifting. I speak from experience. But I also, in those years, met a son of God, a son of God who was full of mercy towards all of my sins. And I have been drawn, however imperfectly, to say to him little by little, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. And and as as I have done that, as, as, as I have done that, I have found in him to, I have discovered in him the sweetest joys I have ever known. The sweetest joys of, of, of resting in him humbly like a child, like a child who's been weaned from its mother rests in its mother. I found him to be, to provide for me the sweetest joys. And what he holds out for us is, is the kingdom that we've been looking for everywhere else. Everywhere else. It is in him. It comes by surrender. 
It comes by surrender. And I, I, I am grateful. I am grateful that Jesus is a Savior who has come like us, who knows what it's like to be us, who's experienced life like us, and who has done perfect for us in our place. So now he is very content to walk with us at a human pace, forgiving us, picking us up again, and saying, let's keep walking. Let's keep going. Stay with me. Stay with me, my friend. This is the safe place, right here. (laughs) You thought it was back there. It's actually right here. This is the safe place, next to me. The safest place in the world, the safest place in the world is next to Jesus. (laughs) Safest place in the world is when your nose is right between his shoulder blades. (laughs) That's the safest place in the world. So I'm grateful that he is a patient Savior. Okay, so what do we do? How do we be with Jesus in his trials? Combine these last week's sermon and this one. It is three things. A life of surrendering prayer. A life, number two, of aggressive repentance. Of giving up those things that do cause rightly placed shame. Of asking God, will you grant me repentance? Will you grant me repentance and and aggressively with our brothers and sisters repenting of sins that do bring rightly placed shame? And then number three, beholding all that God is for us in Christ. For only in that beholding of him are we able to let go of all the distractions, the golden handcuffs, all of the, the trinkets that the world offers us and follow him, follow him seeing the kingdom that he brings. The kingdom, as we, as we spoke of before, in which his righteousness and the knowledge of him, which is the sweetest thing you can ever know, the knowledge of him is not just here or here and then in this moment and this time and on this hilltop experience, but it is everywhere and it covers the entire earth as the oceans cover, as the waters cover the seas. So, a life of surrendering prayer, a life of aggressive repentance, and a life of beholding all that God is for us in Christ. As we walk in this way, we see that he is the lover of our souls. He is the lamb of God for us. And, and he is the Lord who is bringing us to a kingdom like no other. Like no other. A life to a life like no other. So let's pray for that. Let me, let me pray for that now. Our God and our Father, will you grant us hearts, hearts that are surrendering to you day by day, saying to you, nevertheless, I feel this, this hurts, I experience this, but Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So grant us surrender. Grant us faith. Grant us eyes and our hearts to see you, the, our Lamb of God, the one who's been crushed for our iniquities. Grant us to see that it is by your stripes that we are healed. And grant us to see you as our Lord, the Lord who dies for us, the Lord who goes down before he goes up, but the Lord who does go up to bring us to a glorious new life. Grant us eyes to see it. Grant us to feel what we should feel. Grant us to want to be by you. 
Grant us to see with the eyes of faith against everything else that we might see that the safest place in the world is right next to you with your arm around our shoulders. I praise your name, Lord Jesus. I praise your name for your incredible, unbreakable love for us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Receive the benediction. Go resting in this Savior, this Son of Man, the Son of God, who loves you so, so, so much. <laughs> so much so that he would take all of your shame upon himself. Go rejoicing and resting in him. Amen. <laughs>